Welcome to the Yahtzee Podcast. I'm your host, Justin McRoberts. Sarah Billups is a Seattle-based writer who has been speaking at and about the communal practice of religion for a number of years now. Most recently, she's collected a number of those thoughts in a book called Orphaned Believers. It's a wonderful book, actually deeply insightful. And I was thrilled to have her on the podcast to talk not only about that book, but about the history she's had with religion, with Christianity specifically, and the things that led to the assembly of those thoughts that make up that book. I enjoyed the conversation. I think you will as well. Check it out. Thanks for making some space and some time. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's so nice to connect. I've loved connecting online and it's really fun to, to, yeah. to chat with you. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. And you are, you're, you're talking to me from, uh, you're still in the Pacific Northwest. You're Western yep. still? Yep. In Seattle. You're in Seattle. Are you yep. from Seattle? I'm from Indiana. So I grew up in the Midwest, but my husband and I moved out 18 years ago. So it's been, oh. it's been a long time. Where in Indiana? I grew up in Fort Wayne, Northeast. Mm-hmm. And then I met Drew at Taylor, and then we lived in Muncie um, for a few years after. So I've been to Taylor. Central. I've been to Taylor a couple of times. I've been to Taylor, and then um, oh, I'm going to forget the name of the Indiana Wesleyan. Mm-hmm. Um, been out there a couple of times. Years. Did years, you years, speak years. at Taylor? Did you like a Taylor Chapel? I did Taylor Chapel a couple of times, and then I was there on us. I was there on someone else's tour, and then I think I was there once just on my own playing music at some point. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've graduated in 2000. It's been a minute, but I was, would you study uh, creative writing? So this has been the, this has been like the path forever. <laughs> Did you think of that? Like, were you thinking writing creativity, artistry, like you were six and you're like, I have a novel in me. Like how did that Yeah, happen? I mean, it's been, um, writing's kind of like been my jam. And so since I was little, yeah, since I was a kid. And so like my husband studied music composition and he now is a coffee professional and works in ministry. So I feel very proud to have had the family title of undergraduate that actually is using my degree in some way (laughs) now in my life. It's uncommon with us creative folk. It is. It is. Well, oftentimes, I mean, the folks who actually do the, the, the study part of it in college tend to continue on with it. It's just more so that like, it's almost like, well, this isn't always the case, but like folks are like, yeah, I'm in it. I'm in, I'm studying engineering. That's not what you want to do. And so they yeah, get bored totally. to death with engineering. They're like, finally, like I'm going to do the record or whatever. The music. So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, totally. Um, does this, does Seattle feel like home home or do you feel kind of torn between home? Like what is home for you? No, home is, is definitely here. Okay. You know, we we discern we went through a discernment a couple years ago before the pandemic, I suppose, about whether or not we should go back to the Midwest. But had pretty clear confirmation that that this is our place. And oh, so, at this like, point, how did you determine that? Something wild would have to happen. Well, you know the um, the idea of so a lot of I mean I write about this a bit in the book, but a lot of the um, really what lovely monastic traditions, contemplative traditions, Ignatian stuff. I was, you know, taught to be skeptical of as a kid because growing up, we thought maybe Catholics weren't really Christians or we didn't pray to Mary. So there was a lot of just kind of stay away from smells and bells. But like, you know, I'm in my mid forties now. And <laughs> smells and bells. And Gracious. And certainly um, have found a lot of comfort in in those practices. And so the idea of of two things, of one, like a Quaker, this is obviously Quaker tradition, but a clearness committee. So mm-hmm. worked with my spiritual director at church and some other friends to do a series of sessions where we discerned the central question, should we 
leave or or stay, um, yeah. which was uncomfortable to do in community. And I think we normally make a decision and then tell everybody like, hey, I'm moving. Yes. <laughs> but it was really cool to be able to, and a little bit awkward at times and almost embarrassing really to say like, we're not sure, but we're going to process together. But something really sweet came in doing that with other people. So there were a group of, I think, four or five other folks that we knew but didn't know super well. Having um, done and- one, for, for a lot of listeners who won't have any idea what a what a committee actually does in that context, talk about a clearness committee. Like, yeah. what, like, and maybe if you're comfortable walking through, like, maybe the particulars, like, how that actually go, what do you submit? How does the process go? Because it's, it is on as a discernment process because uh, it's not, and this is part of what I want you to help folks out with it. It's not quite just like a decision-making tool. Uh, it's That's more right. than that. Um, so, but, but as, as an instrument of like uh, clarity, it's really unique. There's nothing quite like it. So talk about your process in, uh, in a, in a clearness community. What, what'd you do? What happened? Yeah, that's right. You know, the um so I I in grad school did a class on on contemplative stuff and on spiritual discernment. And so we actually did a clearness committee in class, which was this was maybe five or six years ago, which was interesting to do with yeah. folks I really didn't know well. Um, but then I read, you know, Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer, yeah. where he talks about a specific practice of discerning if he should become a university president and a very interesting breakthrough. And so essentially the, and I've, I've led some of the groups since with friends from church or other folks. So I really enjoy them. And um, the idea is not to get to an answer at the end, but to get to a place of kind of healthy indifference or clarity, like an arrow towards, towards where you should go. So instead of, so, you know, the group would meet, we'd start with prayer and silence. And then instead of asking directed questions the questions are very open-ended and so it may be um sarah when you think about going to indiana how does your how does your body feel like do you feel yourself rise towards that idea or kind of recoil back so there's sort of more physicality to some of the questions ideally the spirit leads them um so it was a a really beautiful experience and ideally at the end we were trying to get to a healthy indifference this idea of jesuit indifference where our hands were open to staying or going and we were totally giving that to god um, so the, the idea now of looking back, feeling confirmed, staying, um, was only cl- again, clarified and reinforced at that time. Um, yeah. so I, I think that they're incredibly valuable and that more yeah. folks in the church should, should, should explore that possibility Absolutely. for discernment. It's such a different, I mean, even for folks, not even, but like, especially like a first time into a process like that, it really does disappoint one's expectations emotionally, right? That right. at some point you're gonna to come to like, someone just freaking tell me what to do. Like <laughs> like I have all these really loving, kind, wise people around me. Will someone just say, listen, this is really, here's your clarity. Like you, yeah. want, you want that, but it's, it is a, it helps, it can help unpack and like peel away. Like this is actually what I'm feeling. Like, oh, what I, I really am feeling that. So that whatever decision I make, I can actually make with a degree of, uh, I want, I want to say confidence with a little, a little bit more like, yeah, I can take a sure step or a more sure step, even in an unsure direction. There's nothing mm-hmm. quite like it. I'm, I'm a huge fan. I'm really glad you did that. That's awesome. Yeah. But it was, it was really cool. And I've loved doing them with other people, but you're right. It is frustrating and it's quiet, but I think that often when the Holy spirit speaks, it is in, it is in silence and kind of in an upside down way. And so, you know, I think Parker Palmer in that book, someone asked him, 
what would you like most about being a university president? And he did have an aha moment, like, oh, I would just like being able to say I'm a university president, you know? And so <laughs> I sometimes there's a very like, clarifying yeah. moment, but for the most part, it's more, uh, uh, I just said time to kind of really sit and think that yeah. is so much more visceral than like a to do a pro con list. Um, and a little countercultural because how often do we get to discern things together and not just announce I'm, I'm moving. So. If I'm getting this right, a part of um, the impetus for your work, a part of the drive behind your your public work, um, with um, specifically the book we're going to talk about, um, but even um, I'm blanking on the name of your. It's called the Bitter Scroll, as a matter of fact, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, is I think I'm picking this up, and tell me if I'm getting this wrong. You, you provide language for folks. I, maybe like in crisis, in trend, like folks who are experiencing tension with the culture they belong to, specifically if they're like in a mainline evangelical religious space, mm-hmm. is is how accurate is that in terms of like like what you're doing with writing, specifically with the book and with the Bitter yeah. School? Yeah, yeah, Bitter School is just my monthly Substack, and with so with orphaned believers, I mean, as a mildly literary person, a person that's aspirationally. <laughs> literary aspirational literary that's great (laughs) i should make a shirt um i really like uh language that's a little bit more imaginative um so for example when i moved to seattle i mean it's a it's a whole story but for about 12 years i had an incredibly dry time spiritually and so i talk about wandering in a spiritual desert because that language really resonates and so when i say orphaned believers i i really just mean a christian in America who's looking around the church and having trouble finding Jesus. Like any of us yeah. looking around and not knowing where Jesus is in, yeah. in the church. And so I mean that like in, in two ways, one culturally, I mean, in Seattle and on in many progressive cities, it's exhausting when I meet someone and we talk about faith stuff and I explain I'm a Christian, but not that kind, or here's what I mean. It's just a, a lot to kind of go through. So there's yep. kind of that cultural piece or in the Bible belt, like when I lived in Indiana, um, there was a lot of, it was expected to go to church. There was a lot of cultural Christianity, but it was harder for me to see a lot of formation where yeah. I, I didn't feel like I was really finding Jesus in that, in that space for, for me. And then also like, you know, spiritually, uh, folks who feel like they've been hung out to dry because they've been in a congregation with the, a broken pastor or have experienced abuse, like people wondering yeah. if politics always has to be embedded with with our faith, a lot, a lot of, a lot of those kind of questions kind of surface too. So that's, yeah. that's a little bit what, about what I mean when I use that term. Yeah. I love that. Um, tidbit of a, of a, of a question here is when you, when you talk about your experience being in Seattle, telling someone you're a person of faith, some, some you're a Christian, and then having to have that follow-up conversation as a lifelong West coaster, yeah. I'll, like even, even maybe, especially, I don't know, even, and maybe especially now, uh, I'll be in places like Texas or North Florida, North Carolina. I'll be somewhere in the South. And um, it'll come up that I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. And the assumption is that that must be really difficult for me mm. as a Christian. Like, wow, how are you pulling that off? And I'm, mm. and. That's an interesting conversation to have. Talk talk about your experience there where you're you are in a town uh and someone asks you know, it comes up and you're a Christian 
and you talk like the assumptions they come up with and like, well, not that kind, like what, how to, how has that conversation actually gone for you in particular? Like, how does that actually play out for you where you live? I mean, this is what's interesting about that conversation. So I, I think I'd say first, if I'm, so I, I was, I did a, a kind of Wednesday night Bible study with a, a church in Florida and the church self-identified as 90% conservative voters or Trump supporters. I wasn't sure how that would go because certainly culturally in Seattle, that's less common, yep. but it was a, a ma- it was a really, really good conversation with lovely people. And their central curiosity is we feel like the West coast is ahead of us of the curve with people leaving the church. Yeah. We feel like you're five years ahead. What is that like? And so interestingly, huh. my my answer is it's um in some ways very refreshing because if you're if you identify as a Christian here, it's not accidentally if you show up at church, it is unless your parents are dragging you, you probably want to yeah. be there. Um yeah. and the thing that I love about the church is that where I and I I have Drew and I've gone to my husband and I have gone to a healthy congregation here for 18 years. We've been quite quite lucky, and that's been an uncommon mm-hmm. experience with a lot of peers. But I love that I don't get to curate or pick who I go to church with. Yeah. This isn't like brunch. Um, it's just so beautiful to be with people you might not choose but end up loving. So yeah. I might talk a little bit about that to folks that I meet here. Um, but interestingly, um, I was talking to someone about this yesterday when somebody. Uh, when I talk to someone here that doesn't identify as a Christian about my faith, um, I had a lot of fear about that before I started writing publicly in 2018. Hmm. Um, Why? Because I, because I think, well, you know, I, so I landed in Seattle in 2004. I started working at, for, I wrote, wrote for all weeklies. I was editing various websites and writing about food. I was working for small presses. I was doing really fun kind of cool work, but I did not talk about my Christianity for a long time. And in fact, <clears throat> went to church on Sunday, but it was not a wholehearted faith. It was certainly something that I kind of kept quiet because yeah. when we landed here, I sensed a real animosity yeah. specifically, specifically around evangelicalism. I didn't understand that Justin until much more recently. Um, when we landed here from Seattle, we came to do co-housing intentional community with some friends. This was like in the Shane Claiborne, new monastic era, like riding the missional church wave, Tim Keller at Redeemers talking about folks going back to the city. So we were really optimistic as you can be if you're a young white middle-class person to go to the city and start a community or a church. And until you've been hurt or run over or hit the wall. Yeah, that's right. So very, but then very quickly we landed and realized this doesn't feel quote unquote, feel like we thought it would. Um, yeah. And just like how in this cultural moment, podcast, Mark Sayers and John Mark Comer talk about cultural assimilation. Very quickly, the city began to assimilate us. Hmm. And a lot of friends that we moved with and other people in our life that were Christians began to use the term spiritual, but not religious. Um, that yeah. was kind of a common term back, back in that time. And yeah. um, so I think that a combination of my husband and I feeling like everyone else is kind of progressing or moving on or using different language and we're just kind of staying the same yeah matched with my own kind of work and professional life made me very quiet for a long time yeah about my fate and and so I think that fast forwarding to the time when I began to write publicly I thought what would what would like Phil from the publishing house do if he knew that I was a Christian and so it was a very it was very clearly like a self-aggrandized I mean Phil's not gonna go home and tell his, 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 um, his spouse, oh, I can't believe I worked with someone that's a Christian and then yeah. wake up the next morning over, over coffee and say, I still can't believe it. Like Phil actually doesn't really care. And interestingly is 
incredibly gracious, it turns out. So many So was that these- helpful? So that time you were quiet, a helpful season for you? You're paying attention? Like, was it no, like- No, it, it was not. It was based in fear. It was not helpful. It, I think mm. I lost a lot of time creatively because I was, it's kind of like if my light was under a bushel, it was like <laughs> almost snuffed out. Yes, and there was this, there was this yeah. feeling of um, I mean again enneagram four whatever of almost like carrying a bag of rocks it it became almost it was a physical weight like I can't keep mm. going on maintaining two identities and then I realized oh nobody actually is difficult or is going to ghost me and and interestingly the folks that have been the most gracious and curious about my writing or the book have almost always been. Folks that don't believe the same thing that I do about God in, yeah. in any way. There's just a real curiosity and, and graciousness I've encountered. Yeah. And sadly, I can't say the same about our very politicized and broken church in a lot of ways. True. So that's kind of where, where I land it. That's good. And in, in, in that context, um, the thing you said a minute ago about um, church can be um, a, a place you said, I don't get to decide yeah. what I'm with. But, you know, potentially, hopefully you end up loving them. Um, I was just having a conversation with someone else about like the the beauty for them telling these stories about, um, you know, being on a, being on some sort of team through the church with like, it's her and some person 20 years older and then like some junior high school kids and like a four year old and like, this is the team and you're with all these being with being with and being in life, however I want to say, doing life with and in in community with people who aren't like you can is that's a high value. Do you have boundaries there? Are there places where like here's a line? So there's the uh, how I want to frame this question. I would uh, um, my experience with uh, in in me and around me is like th- there's a there's a line somewhere where it's like yes we can live in we can live in difference and live in, live in different people but then with this topic with this issue I I can't anymore so for some folks that's the the line is LGBTQ plus membership or even belonging for some folks it's yeah. I mean, you talk about doing a Bible study for for Trump supporters for some folks yeah. it's that if you yeah. have a red hat I'm not going to be around you. That's right. Yeah. Um, talk a little bit about either your experience personally, but also maybe prescriptively. Mm-hmm. Like, where is that line between like it's it can be good and helpful and fruitful and even enjoyable to be in relationship with folks who aren't like you, but then like are then at some point are you supporting bad behaviors or supporting um, terrible is there systems? Kind of like, like tacit, like a tacit consent almost by association. Yeah, either that, that what... a, a, a tacit, tacit consent, or like you're doing damage to yourself. That if you put yourself <laughs> so for so so for friends yeah. of mine who are who are queer, one of the things they'll you know you'll see every Sunday is uh, through Twitter is you don't have to be you don't have to go to church where you're not wanted. Well, like if you're if your church with folks who have a difference of opinion in this world, like that damages your soul. Um, I think that's a worthy challenge. I don't have an answer answer. So I'd love to hear you talk about like what's been your experience with doing doing church with people, being in community with people with whom you have difference. Where are the boundaries? Where are the lines? Like, how's that go? That's such a good question. I mean, I can talk from I can talk from my experience and what I, I'm just, as you're talking and asking this, I'm thinking about the pandemic and I'm specifically honing in on vaccines, on masks, kind of like yeah. the latest issue du jour. And, you know, the thing about that's interesting about, so I go to an Anglican church in Capitol Hill in Seattle, same congregation for 18 years, 
And the thing that the the talking point that I always had, and I I don't mean that as a platitude. The the way that I actually experienced the congregation was, oh, we're a group of people that are broken, moving towards Jesus, and there are folks on various sides of the aisle, politically and socially. But we come together on Sunday, and it's actually this really beautiful tension that we hold because we're pursuing Jesus across difference. But yeah. the truth is, I mean, the truth is, there's been a what I call a like a pressing or a clarification. I think that I mention the church I go to because I think this has played out in a lot of other places and a lot of other cities across the U.S. and even beyond. Um, there's just we've we've lost we've lost people, a lot of people for a yeah. lot of reasons. In practical, they've left because they've moved or it's expensive here or whatever. But also because they can't square going to church with people that don't think or believe the same way. Yeah. that they do and there's a real impoverishment of the culture of who we are so those of us that are left are are thinking and again the church has never been when so when mars hill collapsed it was maybe maybe 250 we probably gained about 100 people but we've been about 150 people the whole way through it's a yeah. fairly small church but it's like how do we define this this space where we want to be able to be a space that makes welcome when there's real complication and we keep kind of shedding people and i i don't have a good or clear answer i don't have good yeah. or clear guidelines i have grief and a sense of sadness and a longing um to be an example of a place that can be different um but i i don't i don't have a an answer because it's just yeah. it feels so fresh and even yeah. with the, the mask thing or the vaccine thing i mean some churches in seattle had like a like a masked section this wasn't where I go but like people can sit in these pews you know and that just that just felt r ridiculous and difficult for us to to think think through so it was definitely a weird it was definitely weird is not the word I want to use weird is the word I use when I don't know what to say it it was definitely a <laughs> yeah. like a, a a tricky uh cultural conversation to navigate because it even by nature and this is part of what I mean is even by nature of uh, hosting a conversation about it, like masks and vaccines. Yeah. In some spaces, even by nature of holding a, a conversation about it, you have offended someone who feels so strongly. You sh this is not, a, because for some folks, it's not a conversation. Similarly with LGBTQ membership and or LGBTQ faith, like it's not even a conversation. And if you're willing to have the conversation, you've already crossed the line. And that's true for for queer folks and for like staunchly not queer folks. Um, that's a, like what what an odd bit of odd what a difficult bit of leadership navigation to have to do. That's right, and we haven't even mentioned. I mean, after George Floyd was murdered, and um, you know, there were some instances of folks being encountered that uh, that thought that racism didn't exist. But for the most part, that is certainly in Seattle. I mean, we yes. have our own bubble, but that is certainly not not our situation. But it was for a lot of churches. Um, but really, folks, like, are we talking about social justice? Social justice, say that in quotes, like too much from the pulpit or not enough? I mean, it, it yeah. is really it is exhausting. So right. I, I say that as a member of the vestry and part of the leadership at church. It's just it's it's quite exhausting. One of the things you actually wrote, uh, I'm looking at some some of the bits from your book. You said, you know, the church remains our best hope. You're talking about like a pathway forward, um, mm -hmm. specifically with regards to belonging, a connection with God. The church remains our best hope. She's what Christ left uh, left us with. The church, the body of Christ, is always being reformed and renewed, mm -hmm. which I think is a key bit of this cultural moment. 
uh, orphan believers can reform the church because it is the people with consciences that cry out who create change. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, can you springboard from that and talk about and talk to a, a couple groups of people that pay attention to this podcast? One group are pastors, like church leader types, not even folks who like hold the title pastor, but they're folks who lead house churches or they wouldn't call them house churches. They just have people who show up in their living rooms on Tuesday nights because or Wednesday nights or whatever, uh, or actual like institutional pastors. Talk to pastors about that, about that hope, because some force we'll do that first and then the second one second for a lot of folks. Um, as some, like I coach pastors, it's, uh, it's not just exhausting. It's the deflating and depressing mm-hmm. like this moment, yeah. which so many, so many folks have left. That's already hard, but the reasons why they've left, if you're someone who likes to hold space for people yeah. and folks are just bouncing and they have a legitimate critique they're also the people who have the energy to make change in the area and they're leaving and they're gone. Right. Talk to those folks about that, about that hope. Like what, what does a pastor hope for? What does a pastor do now in this moment where you have all these orphan believers, you know, the average, average church attendance has fallen something like 35% in the last like six to eight months. What, what is a pastor to do as people are, are, are bouncing around these very important issues for them? Yeah. I mean, what comes to mind is to pull back the curtain and talk about what that experience is like. I think that- You mean personally? It's not, personally, yeah. It's mm. not, I mean, it's not just a, it's not just about folks leaving the church. There's um, many, many folks aren't aren't comfortable using the term Christian, like evangelical. <laughs> We're not talking about that. Like just the, the yeah. idea of the term Christian, which has been, I think in a lot of ways co-opted by Christian nationalists, is a complication so i feel like now we can't it's hard to agree on common language um which i think comes from a lot of pain and from good good thought um and so i think reclaiming that word or talking about definitions is helpful and also the fact that in some parts of the states the evangelical church is growing um but it's growing because of this kind of political and social club of folks that are now embracing the term christian nationalism as Mm -hmm. you know a lot of us have seen there's a new popular book by a pastor talking about why that term is something we should embrace. And so I think that when I'm writing about these topics um, publicly, there are always questions like, what's the difference between, I thought that patriotism was a good thing. And then it's like, well, actually, patriotism is a good thing. Like we are called to love our country, but nationalism is conflating patriotism with a, it's conflating God and country. And so then there's a lot of confusion still. So I think people are leaving, there are orphaned believers because they've been hurt and because there is not a common language anymore or, yep. or vocabulary. And there's a lot of misunderstanding. And so I think being clear and pulling the curtain back can be can be one way to start. I mean, what I didn't mention is my, so my husband had worked in coffee for 22 years and has uh, went to Fuller and, you know, thought he'd never work in the church. And it's just started to work as a, as an assistant pastor part-time and consult with coffee part-time. And so I That's had this like story. image. Of- I'm never working in the church. I'd start on Tuesday, actually. Yes. <laughs> and, so, and so I had this image of him like on a highway, like moving, like the truck kind of moving towards the scene of disaster when everyone else is like leaving. Like yeah. some of us are built with the stuff that can, I don't know if it's a personality type or what kind yes. of fortification we have to have, but some people can do that work and can thrive in it. Other people yeah. like Enneagram fours like me, it's, it is very draining or I talk about it poetically or I write about it, but I'm not 
in the in the work like like he is. And so I just think there's some of us that are gifted with those skills from from God and and because we just happen to be people that can do it. <laughs> See, that's good. And that's part of why I liked, you know, in, in this section, it, you, you, it, it's encapsulated in that the phrase, but you come back to this theme uh, pretty often throughout the course of the book. I'm not even sure it's necessarily like the point of the book per se, but like you come back to this often, this, that the church is always being reformed and renewed. And that yep. insofar as this is a moment, uh, like this can be, I, I come really – I don't like to say the word should almost ever. I'm a father of children. I try not to say the word should. Uh, should be. I come like damn close to saying this should be a moment of of refining and renewing. Yeah. That's um, right. And I'll, I'll, I'll caveat this with with, with this. Uh, Seth Godin was in a conversation recently. He's a, he's a big voice in my life. In which he he noted that that boomers have been responsible for for media and communication for you know forty plus years, mm. and that mm. and that because boomers center themselves as often as they do, um, because boomers are now in their seventies and their lives their lives are ending, like me the media tension around every issue is doomsday because their lives are ending. That this doesn't have to be a moment with regards to church in which like, and this is the way you hear it like I do, people are freaking out like it's the end of Christianity in America. It's the end of the church as we know it, all these things. Boy, it really doesn't have to be that like you, I, I don't want to say like you're being dramatic, but like the, the it doesn't have to be that way. Yep. And there are folks, and these are the some of the folks I'm trying to talk to and, and care for. There are some folks who as the thing is falling apart around them, they're going to stay and they'll wait to the dust settles if they have to, and they'll just pick up whatever around them and build something new. They're going to be there. Yeah. Those that's right. leaders. Um, talk to folks who might be, who might never have identified as leaders. They've been shaped by their culture as consumers. You're a person who comes and consumes this thing. Mm -hmm. And now this thing no longer works. Talk to those folks who've, who've, who've left, like what kind of responsibility should, should someone take for like the culture, for the institution? Is the, is this a call? Like, do you come back? Cause this is home. Like, what do you say? Like a, as a, as someone who wants to lead folks, what do you say to folks who've like left? I don't want to be around it. It's a big freaking mess. It's let's just let it die. Let it burn. Like what does Sarah Phillips say to someone in that camp? Yeah. I mean, I, I talk to someone in that camp with a lot of tenderness and a lot of a lot of empathy and I hope spaciousness. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that if we're if we're blessed with the gift of long life, I think things take a little while. I mean, here's here's the thing. When I so I came up in an evangelical home, my dad was obsessed with end times. I had a lot of fear that I wasn't really safe. This is a very common story. And so I'd lay in bed every night and asked Jesus to come into my heart. And I did this hundreds or thousands of times because I wanted to be sure. Um, and so I think that, and I, I don't say this as a theological comment. I do think that if we decide to follow to follow Jesus, to identify as Christians, there's either a conversion process or a moment or whatever. For some people it's subtle, for some it's quite drastic. Um, my dad had a very drastic conversion in the seventies, but I, I mean this more culturally. I think that I was given this 
feeling like I had to make sure I was okay, that I was really in the book of life. And I think the truth is that we can carry each other that Mm. through that 12 years of spiritual desert I've been, I wandered through in Seattle. I think that Drew, my husband really carried me. I've carried him. And I think that in health, the church can carry us too. And so, Mm. you know, the church is, we, we serve a triune God, right? Like God is communal. He's made us to be communal. And so when I say church, I really just mean the gathered body of believers, Yes. whatever that expression looks like. And you mentioned that some people that listen to the podcast, maybe they have like a house church or whatever they want to call it on Tuesday or Wednesday night. So, so whatever that season looks like, I just, I'm so non-anxious about it. If people yeah. need to take a break, then take a break. Like if yeah. you're doubting, I, I think that I was taught to fear doubt or doubt was going to help me like turn over a rock and uncover everything that I knew was wrong. Like if, if God is real, um, for example, I, I believe in a literal virgin birth and resurrection, right? Like yeah. if, if it's not a myth, if those are true things and I need to, I need to believe that that can change me and that that can hold up. And so yeah. I would say, don't be afraid to doubt, ask big questions, take the time that you need, but yeah. don't, don't isolate, like move towards community in some way in a way that makes sense right now, because I think that then the moment when we isolate is when it can become a a very difficult hill to, to climb, to climb back. Is it an overstatement to say that even as an orphan, I I have, uh, this is almost certainly going to be an overstatement. So feel free to correct the hell out of this. Um, Do you feel like even as an orphan, I have a responsibility to family, like, like, like being an orphan or, or, uh, you know, um, identifying, there's the phrase identifying as an orphan, um, does not abdicate my response. I don't abdicate my responsibility to other people just because I feel isolated. I get to, and this is part of, part of we get like, I don't have to give in to the ice. I can feel like I need a break, but just that by sheer nature of being alive and having yeah. breath, I share space with other people. Even as an orphan, don't I still bear some form of responsibility to people, the people around me with whom I share even history? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we all we all affect each other, right? We we all the way that we talk about faith, the way that we are sarcastic or cynical or hopeful or lead with love. I mean, I'm a <laughs> I think that we're both Gen X, right? Like I'm like I've maybe got a toe in the millennial world, but like I'm 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 in a subculture of people that are are taught to be skeptical and question. Yeah. So how I talk about God and the language I use impacts other people. So yeah, of course. Like we all are leading all the time. We're all affecting each other all the time. That's just part of being a, a human in the world. Yeah. But the the other thought I had is, you know, before the pandemic, um, I used to, I'm really interested in the history of revival and have done some mm-hmm. research in the revival. I write a bit about the Toronto blessing in the book that happened in the nineties. Mm-hmm. But I, I think for a long time, I was praying like, God bring, like bring revival, like in my life, I want to see, like, I want an Anna or Simeon moment. Like, I want to see you move. Like, I want to see things change. And that has shifted profoundly Hmm. for me. Um, I no longer, I I no longer, but kind of like going back to what we talked about in the beginning, this idea of Jesuit indifference. Like, even if we don't get to see it, like, even if we live our whole lives praying for and trying to model and work for the health of the church, there's no, no guarantee. In fact, things will probably get worse before they get better, right? Like denominations will probably continue to splinter. Politics and culture wars aren't going to stop. But those of us that have hearts burning for change, that believe in reform, that really believe, again, if it's not a myth that Christ will preserve the church, yeah. that is beautiful and true. And so that is enough. Like that's enough. Um, and it should, so- up, and it, in other words, it should provide, one would hope, I shouldn't say should, um, it, one would hope that that 
kind of faith provides me with a peace instead mm -hmm. of instead of working from and you and I've both seen this the anxiousness that comes right. from and on in 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 a lot of corners not just the anxiousness that comes fr like in the seat of leadership that looks around at your congregation some of you know I, this has come up with the podcast a few times a friend of mine is a, a is a church leader in Lancaster County Pennsylvania and on the other side of it's like it's one of the most churched counties in in the country like everyone goes it's like a tiny little texas everyone goes to church and after uh after things open back up uh post pandemic 70% of the folks who ceased to who initially ceased to go to their congregations on on sundays 70% of those folks didn't return mm. like given the option like given some time off they're like, oh, we're not going to go. It's 18 months later, two two years for some people. They didn't go back. Mm -hmm. And the anxiousness among leaders at the time of like, what the hell just happened? And what do we do about it? Yeah. Um, in the same way, perhaps like as if, if you have been hurt, legitimately hurt. And if you do have one of those cultural differences that like you really just can't stand by and watch people propagate this. If that's true of you, and you need some time away, take that. And similarly, for leaders, like feel scared. That's okay. Like yeah, you that's right. that's highly appropriate. But for goodness sake, don't build anything in from that emotional posture. Don't go that's planning right. for the future out of a place of like, oh crap, we need to fix it. Because <laughs> that's right. <laughs> that's that's a recipe. One, it's a recipe for like shortening your life. Um and two, everyone can smell that. <laughs> like everyone can smell like you trying to save your thing. Give yourself space and time. Feel orphaned. That's one of the, you know, one of the weird like flip sides to like all these folks who who have left in congregationally. Yeah. Boy, like the 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 pastor, the people we're talking about, the pastor who cares, the person who runs into the into the the cultural building on fire. Those folks feel really freaking alone too, like really, really alone. That's such a good point. That's right. Um, There's such a frenetic energy. Yeah. That's yeah. Right. Give give yourself time to feel scared, disappointed, hurt, and find that thing you just said. Like, what did you say? I, I feel so not so non anxious about non -anxious. this. Like, That's right. Get to that. Get to that point before you start planning and building and scheming again. Yeah. Let's circle back to the clearness committee too. That could be a good time to invite friends to kind of just run what's next. Um, but the, yeah, and I think the elephant in the room, of course, is that pastors have a financial, I mean, there's certainly, it's it's your job, it's your, it's yeah. a calling, but it's also a way that you're supporting your family. Like, there are reasonable considerations as to why there's a lot of anxiousness around church attendance. Like, there are practical reasons and spiritual reasons, it's, it all makes, it all makes sense. Yeah. So again, a lot of tenderness to folks in, in that space, but again, it's not our, it's not our job to, to lead the church as our job to be faithful and, and, and to let God do what God will do in this time. Um, it's great. Even if it's a time of oppressing or, a, or, a, uh, clarifying. Um, so I came to you by nature of, uh, of Instagram. Um, I know a little bit about, uh, about the bitter scroll. Uh, I know the book. Um, I want to turn a little bit of a corner here and talk about your, uh, your process as a creator. As a as a maker of cultural artifacts, whether that's email lists uh, or books, um, talk about um, talk about yourself as an author. Um, you 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 said like you grew up with this sort of inkling. Um, 
the the cheap way to ask this question is like talk about the assembling of of this book. Did you have like reflections floating around? Did you sit down and say like I'm going to finally write this thing? How did the thing come together? For someone, and this is a lot of folks, for someone who's looking to like assemble their thoughts about yeah. their own experience of a cultural moment. Um, like what did it look like for you? Did you pick up pieces that were laying around? Did you did you decide in a moment, like I'm gonna write from scratch? How did it go? Yeah, you know, um, as a uh, as a person that is not a public speaker first or a, uh, I, I mean, I'm a writer first. And so for me, it wasn't a question of, I, I have this other medium I wanna turn into a book. And so for some folks it is, and that's a, a different path, but I can speak for for my my kind of path as a, as a person that loves writing, um, I uh, thought I would never be able to write a book. I thought writing a book was for other people for my entire life from going to the Barnes and Noble in high school on Friday nights, getting a coffee, like a, like a, I don't know, a peppermint latte and like walking around thinking, what is this magical world of publishing? So I've been interested forever. I had a literary magazine and a small press and just poked around. I'm doing my doctorate of ministry at the Peterson Center up in in Michigan with mm -hmm. uh, with Wing Collier and at Western, and so it's the the cohort's called the Sacred Art of Writing, and so I'm yeah. working with other writers, thinking thinking about how are they on their path to publication, and realize like there's a difference between being a writer and an author, and that's something mm -hmm. that I didn't see at first, and so talk more about that because I I'm with you 100. percent Yeah, that's the difference right. between being a writer and an author. What's that difference for so you? I yeah, I mean, so I've been a writer since I was a kid, um, but the idea of being an author requires two things. One, let's say you have a book contract. It means that you have to spend time researching and producing a well-crafted and well-edited piece of material. But then there's a second phase where you put on your marketer's hat, you know, so like when a book is being put into the world, book launch season is a real thing. It has real requirements. Yep. There's a whole social media piece. There's a public piece that some some of us don't think about when we think about writing a book, um, yeah. we don't think about what it means to bring it into the world, to steward it well and publicly. And yeah. so there's another, there's a lot of anxiety, I think, with first time authors like me, like, I have to sell enough books to do it again. Like, what if I, what if I don't like hit the mark? What if I can't keep going? Yeah. But I've, I've really calmed down about that because I realized if you're a writer, you're a writer first. And if you're an author, that means you publish something and that's beautiful and a gift. Yeah. But I'm a writer. I'm a writer after no matter what happens. That's something yeah. I carry with me. So and I've it's, learned in a sense, like the author part is like in the same way that if you're someone who cares for for people, you want to do so spiritually, socially, you can take a job as a pastor and do that for for however long it lasts. Um, right. And then if and when that goes away, you're still that person who cares for people spiritually, socially. That's sort of the relationship you're pointing out, like an author, like it's a title that has to do with a particular job you do, but the work of your life stays the same as a writer. That's right. Ab yeah. Absolutely. That's like the, the calling or identity piece. And so I've learned a whole lot about the publishing world. And I would also say that as a, as a woman in this, in the Christian publishing world, I've learned, you know, Kate Bowler talks about this in The Preacher's Wife, how there yes. are ways that women who are not preaching have found to still be in that position of power. Maybe it's a musician or an artist. There's yep. the preacher's wife. There's the person that speaks at conferences to stadium-sized crowds, but is not considered a, a pastor, right? And so the interesting piece of being a woman in Christian publishing has been a whole other dynamic, especially yeah. because the, the work that I'm doing is certainly not gender specific and is more no. journalistic. 
So that's been another interesting dynamic. So I've I've learned a lot, Justin. It's been quite a process. It's been really good, but interesting. Give me an example of something you know or uh, know or realize uh, or like more about yourself now uh, after putting work in the world, because that's part of what changes, right? You, you put, you take the stuff that's in you that you, well, you damn well better believe for reals to put in a book because that's not going away. Uh, now it's in stone. Um, you put it in the world. And it kind of comes back to you in different ways and you you sort of see yourself differently. It's one of the things that makes it, and you and I, that's part of what we're talking about. It's part of the thing that makes it scary for folks to put work in the world is because you you actually see yourself differently on the other side of it. So talk about like, what do you know about yourself? What have you learned about yourself? What do you like more about yourself now on the other side of being a published author and putting this specific work in the world? Yeah, I mean, of course, when you're asking that, I'm thinking about all of the sides of myself I didn't know I had that came out in the process. Like so what? There's a lot. Well, there's a lot that I, so, you know, I, I guess what, what happens is typically folks um, have an idea for a book and that came out one morning. The idea came pretty quickly. I got out index cards. My husband came downstairs. He said, what are you doing? I said, I have this idea. So I, I it came really quickly. I had a wild weekend of writing the introduction and some other pieces that just kind of flew out. And then, then you go into writing a book proposal, typically if you're a first time author, nonfiction. Mm -hmm. And so that process was excruciating and slow mm -hmm. because you have to typically write out chapter summaries and have a real frame and structure. So any kind of creative flow is, it's a different kind of thing. You have comps yes. and a marketing plan. It's a business plan, right? Yep. And so then that piece was difficult um, but then, you know, I started working with an agent, John Blaze, who is at the Bindery, who is completely great and, awesome. and the, really, the, really the best. And we started pitching the book. And that's when I started seeing sides of myself come out that I didn't know that I had because the, mm. the anxiety, like the hopes, the sort of highs and lows of of rejection. So I'm I'm used to pitching op-eds and articles. I'm used to you usually don't hear from an editor, or if you do, it's really good news, but you're still rejected. So I've had plenty of practice with pitching, but when it's something that feels so much like you, it quote unquote feels, and you're getting for it feels like a part of your person, it's hard yeah. to separate out who you are from the the work. And so I think that um that that was an interesting process that made me realize I have a lot of anxiety attached to this work. This matters mm -hmm. because it's so personal. That was a time of me kind of beginning to separate the work from, from my own identity and to honor it in a healthy way, but to have some boundaries. Yeah. Um, so then when it when the writing process happened and it finally came out in the world, um, I I think that the the thing that I've learned that I that I consider a gift and a grace is that um I had this idea in three years ago and I I believe in it more than ever like mm -hmm. I I think that I've gotten close to a sense of calling and mm. a real desire in me to continue to work on behalf of the health of the church and to um in my own kind of pastoral way to to be able to model faithfulness like if mm. anybody needs an example of like a middle-aged white lady in Seattle that's being faithful like in a complicated culture like like yeah. hey I'm here and, and I'm doing that through this work and so cultivating yeah. community around that connecting with people has been generative and and awesome so that has that. been really lovely that's great I love that answer thank, thank you. you and thanks for your time today I really this appreciated this so fun thank you great. so much you're super welcome and thank you for joining me on this episode of the at sea podcast 
If you'd like to follow up with Sarah Billups, you can visit her at sarahbillups.com. That's Sarah without the H, Billups with two L's, S-A-R-A-B-I-L-L-U-P-S.com. From there, you can sign up for the Bitter Scroll, which we referenced during the conversation. Also jump to any place where you prefer to buy books to pick up orphaned believers. And if you'd like to be one of the folks that helps make this podcast happen, we'd love to have you on the team. Visit me at patreon.com backslash Justin McRoberts. Until next time.